Book One, Chapter Two, of Under the Witch's Moon. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Under the Witch's Moon by Nathan Galazier. Book One, Chapter Two, The Weaving of the Spell. After they had disappeared, Tristan stood at gaze, puzzled where to turn, for the spectacle had suddenly changed. New bands of revellers had invaded the Piazza Novona, and it seemed indeed as if the eve of St. John were assuming the character of the ancient Lupercalia, for the endless variety of costumes displayed by a multitude assembled from every corner of Italy, Spain, Greece, Africa, and the countries of the North, was now exaggerated by a wild fancifulness and grotesque variety of design. Tristan himself did not escape the merry intruders. He was immediately beset by importunate revellers, and not being able to make himself understood, they questioned and lured him on, imploring his good offices with the enemy of mankind. Satyrs, fauns, and other sylvan creatures accosted him, diverting their antics, when they found themselves but ill repaid for their efforts, and leaving the solitary stranger pondering the expediency of remaining or wending his steps toward the inn of the Golden Shield, where he had taken lodging upon his arrival. These doubts were to be speedily dispelled by a spectacle which attracted the crowds that thronged the piazza, causing them to give way before a splendid procession that had entered the Navona from the region of Mount Aventine. Down the Navona came a train of chariots, preceded by a throng of persons clad in rich and fantastic oriental costumes, leaping, dancing, and making the air resound with tambourines, bells, cymbals, and gongs. They kept up an incessant jingle, which sounded weirdly above the droning chant of distant processions of pilgrims, hermits, and monks, traversing the city from sanctuary to sanctuary. The occupants of these chariots consisted of a number of young women, in the flower of youth and beauty, whose scant apparel left little to the imagination either as regarded their person or the trade they plied. The charioteers were youths, scarcely arrived at the age of puberty but skilled in their profession in the highest degree. The first chariot, drawn by two milk-white steeds of the Berber breed, was inlaid with mother-of-pearl, with gilded spokes and trappings that glistened in the light of a thousand colored lanterns and torches, like a vehicle from fairyland. The reins were in the hands of a youth hardly over sixteen years of age, garbed in a snow-white tunic, but the skill with which he drove the shell-shaped car through the surging crowds argued for uncommon dexterity. Tristan, from his station by the fountain, was enabled to take in every detail of the strange pageant which moved swiftly towards him, a glittering fantastic procession, as if drawn out of dreamland. And so enthralled were his senses that he did not note the terrible silence which had suddenly fallen upon the multitude. As a half-slumbering man may note a sudden brilliant gleam of sunshine flashing on the walls of his chamber, Tristan gazed in confused bewilderment, when suddenly his stupefied senses were aroused to hot life and pulsation, as he fixed his straining gaze on the supreme fair form of the woman in the first car, standing erect like a queen, surveying her subjects. In the silence of a great multitude there was always something ominous, but Tristan noted it not. Indeed, he was deaf and blind to everything, save the apparition in the shell-shaped car, as it bounded lightly over the unevenly laid tufa of the Navona. Was it a woman or a goddess? A rainbow flame in mortal shape, a spirit of earth, air, water, or fire? He saw before him a woman combining the charm of the girl with the maturity of the thirties. 
dark-haired, exquisitely proportioned, with clear-cut features and dark slumberous eyes. She wore a diaphanous robe of pale silk gauze. Her wonderful arms, white as the fallen snow, were encircled by triple serpentine coils of gold, else she was unadorned, save for a circlet of rubies which crowned the dusky head. Her sombre eyes rested drowsily on the swarming crowds, while a smile of disdain curved the small red mouth as her chariot proceeded through the frozen silence. Suddenly her eye caught the admiring gaze of Tristan, who had indeed forgotten heaven and earth in the contemplation of this supremest handiwork of the Creator. A word to the charioteer, and the chariot came to a stop. Tristan and the woman faced each other in silence, the man with an ill-concealed air of uneasiness such as one may experience who finds himself face to face with some unknown danger. With utter disregard for the gaping crowds which had gathered around the fountain, she bent her gaze upon him, surveying him from head to foot. "'Who are you?' she spoke at last, and he, confused, bewildered, trembling, gazed into the woman's supremely fair face, and stammered, "'A pilgrim!' Her lips parted in a smile that revealed two rows of small white even teeth. There was something unutterable in that smile which brought the color to Tristan's brow. "'A Roman? From the North. Why are you here? For the salvation of my soul.' He blushed as he spoke. Again the strange smile curved the woman's lips, again the inscrutable look shone in her eyes. "'For the salvation of your soul.' she repeated slowly after him. "'And you so young and fair! Ah! You have done some little wickedness, no doubt.' He started to reply, but she checked him with a wave of her hand. "'I do not wish to be told. Do you repent?' Tristan's throat was dry. His lips refused utterance. He nodded awkwardly. "'So much the worse. These little peccadilloes are the spice of life. What is your name?' She repeated it lingeringly after him. From the north, you say, to do penance in Rome." She watched him with an expression of amusement. When he started back from her, a strange fear in his heart, a wave of her hand, checked him. "'Let me whisper a secret to you,' she said with a smile. He felt her perfumed breath upon his cheek. Inclining his ear, he staggered away from her dizzy, bewildered. Presently, with a dazzling smile, she extended one white hand and Tristan, trembling as one under a spell, bent over and kissed it. He felt the soft pressure of her fingers, and his pulse throbbed with a strange insidious fire, as reluctantly he released it at last. Raising his eyes, he now met her gaze, absorbing into his innermost soul the mesmeric spell of her beauty, drinking in the warmth of those dark sleepy orbs that flashed on him, half resentfully, half mockingly. Then the charioteer, jerked up the reins, the chariot began to move. Like a dream the pageant vanished, and slowly, like faraway thunder, the voice of the multitudes began to return, as they regarded the lone pilgrim with mingled doubt, fear, and disdain. With a start Tristan looked about. He was as one bewitched. He felt he must follow her at all risks, ascertain her name, her abode. Dashing through the crowds that gave way before him, Wondering and commenting upon the unseemly haste of one wearing so austere a garb, Tristan caught a last glimpse of the procession as it entered the narrow gorge that lies between Mount Testaccio and Mount Aventine. With a sense of great disappointment he slowly retraced his steps, 
walking as in the thrall of a strange dream, and after inquiring the direction of his inn of some wayfarers he chanced to meet, he at last reached the inn of the Golden Shield, situated near the Flaminian Gate, and entered the great guest-chamber. The troubled light of a melancholy dusk was enhanced by the glimmer of stone lamps suspended from the low and dirty ceiling. Notwithstanding the late hour, the smoky precincts were crowded with guests from many lands, who were discussing the events of the day. If Tristan's wakeful ear had been alive to the gossip of the tavern, he might have heard the incident in the Navona, in which he played so prominent a part, discussed in varied terms of wonder and condemnation. Tristan took his seat near an alcove usually reserved for guests of state. The unaccustomed scene began to exercise a singular fascination upon him stranger as he was among strangers from all the earth, their faces dark against the darker background of the room, brooding over a tankard of Falernian of the hue of bronze, which his oily host had placed before him, he continued to absorb every detail of the animated picture, while the memory of his strange adventure dominated his mind. Tristan's meagre fund of information was to be enriched by tidings of an ominous nature. He learned that the pontiff, John the Eleventh, was imprisoned in the Lateran palace by his step-brother, Alberic, the senator of Rome. While this information came to him, a loyal son of the church, as a distinct shock, Tristan felt, nevertheless, strangely impressed with the atmosphere of the place. Even in the period of her greatest decay, Rome seemed still the centre of the universe. Thus he sat brooding for hours. When, with a start, he roused himself at last, he found the vast guest-chamber well-nigh deserted. The pilgrims had retired to their respective quarters, small, dingy cells, teeming with evil odors, heat, and mosquitoes, and the oily Calabrian host was making ready for the morrow. The warmth of the Roman night, and the fatigue engendered after many leagues of tedious travel on a dusty road, under the scorching rays of an Italian sky, at last asserted itself, and wishing a fair rest to his host, who was far from displeased to see his guest-chamber cleared for the night. Tristan climbed the crooked and creaking stairs, leading to the chamber assigned to him, which looked out upon the gate of Castello, and the Tiber, where it is spanned by the bridge of San Angelo. The window stood open to the night air, on which floated the perfumes of oleander and almond groves. The roofs of the Eternal City formed a dark shadowy mass in the deep blue dusk, and the cylindrical masonry of the Flavian Emperor's tomb rose ominously against the deep turquoise of the night sky. Soon the events of the day and the scenes of the evening began to melt into faint and indistinct memories. Sleep, deep and tranquil, encompassed Tristan's weary limbs, but in his dreams the events of the evening were obliterated before the scenes of the past. End of chapter 2